Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you now asking for wisdom as we seek to understand your word and apply it to our lives. We pray for help. If we don't have it from you, we won't have it. And so, Lord, we pray for understanding, not just to cognitively understand the words that are before us, but to actually apply them to our lives. We need help. We're feeble and frail, and we need help. So we ask that you would give us wisdom and understanding where we lack it. Be with me as I say these words. Pray that you would speak in place of me to your people. That we would all take a seat under your word and hear directly from you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Matthew 4, 1 to 11. Have you ever been in a dark place? Enduring a trial for seemingly no apparent reason? Thinking to yourself, maybe even, will this ever end? Is there a way out of the darkness? Maybe a death of a loved one or a life-threatening illness. In the short time that we've been together, many of us have been going through these seasons of suffering. Some of us are still in the midst of those seasons. It's that time in your life where the last thing you want is to be near people, especially happy people. The times where the last thing you want is to hear the seemingly empty promises of God. If you can even muster up the stomach to pray, you feel as though your prayers hit the ceiling and fall right back down to the floor. The heavens, it would seem, are completely and totally silent. There was a time about 10 years ago when I was right there. I remember I was in seminary at the time and I was driving home from class about 25 miles home, which in Dallas traffic is about 16 hours. So I had plenty of time to think. I got in the car and I was driving that way and I had recently rediscovered an artist by the name of Andrew Peterson. And I had decided to play one of his albums called Love and Thunder. And one of the tracks on Love and Thunder is called The Silence of God. And what he sang was exactly what I was feeling at that moment. One of the verses, he says this, It'll shake a man's timbers when he loses his heart. When he has to remember what broke him apart. 
This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not when the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. And if a man has got to listen to the voices of the mob who are reeling in the throes of all the happiness they've got, and when they tell you all their troubles have been nailed up to that cross, what about the times when even followers get lost? Because we all get lost sometimes. Sometimes our suffering is so deep and so tough that the last thing that we want to hear about is spiritual matters. And when you hear people say, God is good, and you know deep down somewhere in your heart of hearts that that's true, sometimes you just want people to weep with you. In our text this morning, we're going to watch Jesus suffer. We're going to watch him endure temptation. Now, this is another passage like the one we talked about last week that we can be really familiar with. This the tempting of Jesus in the wilderness. And sometimes we can look at this passage as if Jesus is Superman and he's walking into the wilderness and there Satan is ready to do battle with him and he just keeps firing bullets at him and they just keep pinging off of him in every single direction as if Jesus is completely unfazed by the temptation of Satan here in the wilderness. I don't think that's what we're looking at at all. I think what we're actually seeing is Jesus being genuinely tempted and yet enduring without sin. And in the end, I think Jesus demonstrates one thing very clearly. An unwavering trust in the goodness of God. In the midst of trial. Let's look at our text, Matthew 4, 1-11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights... He was hungry, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these... I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So as our passage opens, it's necessary to pay really close attention to how this scene is set up. You'll remember last, uh, when last we talked last week 
that Jesus has just been baptized by, the, by John the Baptist. And when he comes up out of the river after being baptized, we see a picture right there of the heavens opening up and the voice of God uh, coming out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the spirit descends on him like a dove. And that's where the scene ends there and the end of chapter three. And when we pick up at the, end of cha- or at the beginning of chapter 4, this same spirit that descended on Jesus like a dove is now leading him out into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. Now, there might be a question or two in your mind as we read verse 1. Like, why would the Holy Spirit lead Jesus to be tempted anywhere? Why would, that be a, why would that be a thing? That doesn't make sense. Why, why would God do that? I, I didn't think God does that kind of thing. How, how do I understand that? Well, it might be helpful to kind of unpack what's happening here in this scene. The word for tempted is the same word that we usually translate testing. One word, and it's usually translated one of two ways, either to be tempted or to be tested. And th- but those two English words, tempt and test, have two entirely different connotations. The first, tempt, is to really has the connotation of luring somebody into falling, into failure, into sin. While the other, test, really is just to point out the strengths and weaknesses of something, like a metal, let's say. So one is used almost exclusively for bad purposes, and one is used mostly for good purposes. Tempt versus test. Well, what's the Spirit's aim here? Driving, leading the Son of God out into the wilderness to be tested. Well, James 1.13 tells us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one with evil. So we know that that's true, that God is never going to tempt someone into failure. But that's not to say that God doesn't test people. Of course he does. Deuteronomy uh, 13.3, speaking about false prophets, he says this, You shall not listen to the words of that false prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. To know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And that's just one of many passages, particularly in the Old Testament, where we see that God is actively testing his people. Now the difference is the intent of the one putting on the trial. Now in this scene, in Matthew, we have three characters. We have Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, and we have the devil, or Satan. All right? Now, Jesus is obviously the one undergoing the trial, but both the Holy Spirit and Satan have two different purposes in that trial. Satan is obviously trying to lure Jesus into failure, into moral failure. But the Holy Spirit is there to test or to prove the perfection of the only begotten Son of God, to prove that He is righteous. That he is indeed perfect. So Satan's is to tempt him to sin, while the Holy Spirit's is to test him and to prove his righteousness. 
R.T. France explains it this way. Though Satan is hostile toward all God's people, he is ultimately subject to the sovereignty of God. So even though Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to do wrong, he is still operating under the umbrella of God's good purpose in testing his son. So as we look at each of these temptations, that we're, we're seeing Jesus' unwavering trust in the promises of God. The first thing that we see is that Jesus trusts in God's provision. He trusts in God's provision. Look there at verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, Out in the wilderness, Jesus is fasting. He's gone for 40 days and 40 nights without food. And it's clear that what Matthew is bringing to our minds is the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And we know that that's what Matthew is trying to draw our attention to first because of the pattern that we've seen in Jesus' story so far. Jesus, what was he? He was called out of Egypt. He was the son of God that was called out of Egypt, just like Israel was the son of God also called out of Egypt. Jesus then passes through the waters Just like the children of Israel do. Jesus through baptism, there through the Red Sea. And then immediately go out into the wilderness. Jesus for 40 days, the children of Israel for 40 years. The pattern of this story is meant to reflect the wilderness wanderings of the children in Israel. The second reason we know that Matthew is bringing this to mind on purpose is because Jesus responses to the temptations of the devil. Now, a lot has been made of Jesus' responses to the devil, particularly in how he uses Scripture to battle Satan's temptations. And the implication being, we should also quote Scripture as we're battling Satan's temptations. That's certainly true. Yes and amen. Yes, may that tribe increase. But Matthew's intent here is to show something a little bit different. Jesus' responses are all from the book of Deuteronomy. And therefore, they all reflect the wanderings and the reminders of Moses giving to the children of Israel about their wanderings in the desert, in the wilderness. So it's clear that even Jesus thinks of himself as enduring these trials in the wilderness the same way the children of Israel endured their trials in the wilderness. So he's suffering without food for 40 days and 40 nights, and the devil comes to him and tempts him. And what does he say? He says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, surely it's no sin to turn a stone into a loaf of bread. Jesus will turn water into wine. He will heal the blind. He will raise the dead. He will walk on the sea He will calm the storm. He's going to perform miracles of all kinds. Surely it's no sin to turn a stone into a loaf of bread if he really needed provision. So why is this a temptation? Jesus' response tells us everything about why this would be sin. He responds, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3. You can jot that down if you want to. Deuteronomy 8.3, that's what he quotes. And that, that 
verse says, man shall not live by bread alone, but man shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the reason he cites this part of the passage in Deuteronomy where this verse occurs is because of the context in which it occurs. So Moses is in the middle in the book of Deuteronomy of reminding the children of Israel of how the Lord tested them and tested their heart as they were wandering through the desert. You'll remember the book of Deuteronomy is the children of Israel are about to go into the land that God has promised to them. Moses is not going with them, and he's writing to them a word of warning about when they get there to remember what's just happened. Remember what God has done for you, and remember what you have done to God. And so in, eight, in chapter 8, he says, Moses says this to the, the Jews before they go into the land. He says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As Israel was tested by God, it says literally there that he was testing them with hunger. He let them hunger so that he could feed them. So as they're tested, Jesus is is also being tested. And he's waiting faithfully in the midst of his wandering for God to provide. God provided manna for them to eat. So they didn't have to provide it for themselves. And so Jesus sees himself in a similar situation. He's not willing to provide bread for himself because he knows it's going to be provided for him. And if you look there at the end of our passage in verse 11, the angels come and they start ministering to him. Now, I assume as they did with Elijah in the Old Testament, so they're doing with Jesus here and they're giving him food and ending his fast. The, t- the temptation to sin here for Jesus is not in the miracle itself. It's not even in using its, his power. It's, it's really in failing to trust in God's provision. It's failing to trust God will provide even for his most basic need. So he's making this statement that obedience to God's will takes priority over self-gratification. That's essentially it. Yes. I think it's, it's really important to see here that this really is a temptation for Jesus. Not just because he's hungry, but because he's capable of providing for himself. He's capable of taking that stone and making it bread if he wants to. On top of that, he hasn't had food for 40 days. So, he's hungry. right? Instead, he chooses to be humbly submissive to the sovereign plan of God in unwavering trust and wait for God to provide relief. But next we see that Jesus trusts in God's protection. Yes, they all start with a P, so good Baptist sermon. Uh, Jesus trusts in God's protection. Look at verse 5. He says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, 
He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So now the devil transports Jesus to the highest portion of the temple, and it would have been somewhere near 160 feet. So we're looking at about 15 stories up, just to put that visual in your mind, about 15 story tall building. There's even one portion of the temple that's a porch, like a portico, and just just on the other side of that portico is the Kidron Valley. So this could be even hundreds more feet depending on where they are on the temple. The point is that a fall from that height would certainly kill you, be certainly fatal. And so Satan begins the same way he began the last test. If you are the son of God, just throw yourself down. And in a surprising turn of events... Satan actually knows the words of Scripture, and he quotes them to Jesus. He quotes Psalm 91, 11 to 12. And this psalm that he quotes is widely regarded as being applicable to the Messiah, that this is talking about the Messiah. All the Jews recognize that. It's a psalm of protection. And if you read some of the verses that follow what he quoted... It says this, just to give you a a, a bigger picture here. He says, You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. This is God talking now. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and, and, uh, and show him my salvation. So, so it's clear that God is aiming in that passage to protect the Son of God. God has promised that he will protect and he will safeguard his faithful one. He's not going to let anything happen to him. He's not going to let his foot be dashed against the stone. And so here Satan comes, takes Jesus to the top of the temple, and he says, look, if you're the son of God, then throw yourself off. Throw yourself off the temple and he'll save you. Now, call me crazy, but it doesn't look like really that strong of a temptation at first. It's almost like Satan started off really strong, but then his game declined as he went on. It got weaker as he went on, like Georgia. You just, by the end, just weren't there. We do know the devil went down to Georgia. We don't know what happened there. Uh, (laughs) Maybe he became the strength and conditioning coach. I don't know. Um, But the point is, turning the stones into bread after 40 days of fasting, that seems like a really strong temptation. I think we can all align with that kind of temptation. If someone starts talking about food two hours after breakfast, I start getting hungry. 40 days without food, I can imagine how tempting that is to turn the stone into bread. But for some reason, when it comes to throwing myself off a building, I don't know how tempting that would be. Again, Jesus responds to Satan, and he refers back to the wilderness wanderings when the children of Israel were needing water this time. And what he cites there is uh, quoting Moses, where Moses is warning the Israelites 
about when they put the Lord to the test. It's in Deuteronomy 6.16. You can write that down. He says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, if you'll think back to the story of Massa, and if you're following along in, that, in the little Bible reading guide that we have, this was last week. We read this in Exodus 17, where the children of Israel are complaining against Moses and the Lord that they brought them out of Egypt to kill them in the desert. They say this, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, now this is when the Lord tells Moses, strike the rock and water will come out and it will provide water for all of the children. So they're basically saying, the Lord has brought us out here and not to protect us, but to kill us. And then that passage in Exodus ends this way. It says, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? That's the test. Is the Lord among us or not? Is he really here or not? Now go back to Matthew and think about Jesus standing on top of the temple. How we understand his trial in the wilderness for 40 days will determine whether or not this makes sense to us, him throwing himself off the building. If we think about his testing as really him sitting under a shade tree, constantly talking with the Lord, always feeling the physical presence of God the Father there with him, always having the angels during that entire thing to sit and talk to, maybe even play chess with, or whatever it is they're doing under this shade tree. If we think about it like that, it won't make sense. Why would you throw yourself off a building? But if instead... We think about Jesus' trial in the wilderness as the most grueling time a person could possibly endure for 40 days with little to no tangible reassurance that God is present. Then the temptation of Jesus as he stands on the temple is to test God by saying, is the Lord with me or not? And to prove that he is, just jump off. Jump off and he'll catch you. It's at that point Satan comes along and he tells him, look, the word says he won't let you dash your foot against a rock. He won't let you get hurt at all. So if you want to compel him to act on your behalf, just Put him in a situation where he has to serve you. And what will happen? He will unzip the sky. He will step in. He will catch you before you fall. And there you will be reassured of his presence once again. But Jesus is unwilling to put God the Father to the test because it would put the Father in service to the Son rather than the Son in service to the Father. Jesus instead trusts that the Father hasn't brought him out here to kill him. At least not yet. The last observation. Jesus trusts in God's plan. Jesus trusts in God's plan. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So yet again, the devil transports Jesus to a very high place, probably in a vision here. He transports him, and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the world from this vantage point. And he offers them to Jesus in exchange for Jesus' worship of him. Now, to one degree or another, Satan actually has the ability to deliver on this promise, if he so chooses. Well, we're told later on in Matthew that Satan has his own kingdom. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this world, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of, un, of the unbelievers. The point is that Satan's promise to Jesus actually has some teeth to it. I can give you all the kingdoms in the world. So don't think here that Jesus isn't truly tempted. Don't think yet again, he's Superman. This, he's unfazed by these shenanigans that Satan is pulling. Of course he's tempted. He's tempted here to get to the right end by the wrong means. To the right end by the wrong means. This is how his course evolves, doesn't it? In the Gospel of Matthew, this is his, his goal. What will happen in the end? He will be given all the kingdoms. He says this at the end of the Great Commission, right? Or at the beginning of the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So the end, the culmination of this gospel is that Jesus is given all the kingdoms of the earth. He's been given all authority over everything. The end result is, of course, his reign, his dominion. But what's God's plan to accomplish this? Crucifixion. Remember, even in the garden, Jesus prays, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There's an anguish over going to the cross and being crucified. This is a real temptation to shortcut the plan of God to achieve the right end by the wrong means. He could get the people, essentially, without the crucifixion. The dominion and the reign, the power, without the crucifixion. But Jesus responds to what amounts to the central command in the book of Deuteronomy. And it comes from Deuteronomy 6.13. He says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. The children of Israel are tempted time and time and time again to go after other gods. They marry women of other cultures frequently. They enslave men of other cultures Frequently, and they tolerate false worship within their own ranks frequently. And the reason that God commands them throughout the book of Deuteronomy to purge the evil person from among them is because they are so tempted to flee to other gods. They are so tempted to be persuaded and turn their hearts away from Yahweh. The temptation here for Jesus is to bow down and worship Satan. It's the same temptation that the children of Israel faced in the wilderness wanderings. Here is Jesus 
the new and better Israel going into the desert for his own wilderness wanderings. And he too is being tempted by Satan here. And what is he being tempted with? Well, he was tempted to doubt the provision of God as Israel was tempted. He's tempted to doubt the protection of God as Israel was tempted. He's being tempted to doubt the plan of God as Israel was tempted. Yet he's doing it without sin. And why is he doing it without sin? Precisely because we couldn't. Precisely because we couldn't. As we talked about last week, we'll say again, we have no way of achieving the righteousness of God on our own behalf. We can't do it. Jesus not only has to go out here as Israel did, but he has to do what they couldn't do. He has to achieve the righteousness of God so that on the cross he has something to offer you and me. Not only punishment for our sins, but a righteous life lived. This is the heart of the gospel. This is what we come to trust in Christ for. Not only that we have forgiveness of sin, but that he has achieved the righteousness that I could never. There's a reason why I think this is important for us. A couple of reasons, actually. Particularly in our own suffering, it's important. As Luke read earlier, the author of Hebrews says this way, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. The first reason that I think this is important is that we also are tempted to doubt the goodness of God's provision, His protection, and His plan. It's never fun to go through the darkness of trials. Some trials are particularly awful dealing with things that people, even in our own midst, are dealing with, things like cancer, whether it be ourselves or a very near loved one. These are the trials that keep us up at night and keep us in constant worry and keep us hoping against hope for healing of some kind. And it's during these times that it's easy to understand why the children of Israel come to Moses and think that the Lord has taken us out here to kill us. And if you're going through a trial dark enough, it will cause you to question the goodness of God. You'll be tempted to entertain the arguments of the scoffers who say either he's not real or he's not good. And if you haven't gotten to that point, I hope you never do, but chances are you will. It's necessary for us to pray for help. Father, I am having a hard time believing in your goodness. Please help me in my unbelief. And his word assures us time and time and time again. And if you're there, his word assures you too. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, you have to be careful with that verse. It's thrown out there a ton. It doesn't mean that you'll get healed. That verse doesn't mean that you'll get the job. 
And it doesn't mean that you won't hurt anymore. What it does mean is that in the midst of sickness, in the midst of joblessness, and in the midst of pain, all of this, he is working for your good. That's the promise. That it's not because he hates you. It's because he loves you. That all of this is for your good. Think back on the promises he has already fulfilled in Scripture. Think back on the times that time and time again he has reassured you of his goodness. Rest in that, knowing that even if it means pain, he means you no harm. Second thing, second reason why I think this is really important for us is that Jesus suffered with us. It shows us very clearly in this passage, Jesus suffered with his people. This passage is so beautiful to me for a myriad of reasons, but in this passage, we're witnessing this scene where the eternal Son of God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, suffers temptation. He suffered like me. Do you know the comfort being in the midst of trial and having a friend come alongside you, not to lecture you as Job's friends do, not to give you advice, but just to put their arm around you and say, I know. I know. At the end of the song, The Silence of God, that I quoted earlier, Andrew Peterson sings these words. There's a statue of Jesus on a monastery knoll in the hills of Kentucky, all quiet and cold. And he's kneeling in the garden, as silent as a stone, and all his friends are sleeping, and he's weeping all alone. And the man of all sorrows... He never forgot what sorrow is carried by the hearts that he bought. So when the questions dissolve into the silence of God, the aching may remain, but the breaking does not. May we never forget that God's solution to the problem of suffering was not to give us advice. It was to suffer with us. And there's a tremendous amount of comfort in that. Now make no mistake about it in Jesus' trials as well as our own. Satan has his plans as well. And we'll constantly be tempted to disbelieve the goodness of God. Time and time and time again. They will fail to trust God for faithful deliverance. But we have to remember that whether it's our life or whether in our death, that God always works everything together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that it will be for our good and for his glory. The question is, in the midst of testing, do you trust him? 